Good morning. So I have, I have yet to, actually you can bring up the, the background for the scripture verse because that's going to kind of fit with what we're talking about. I have yet to uh, coordinate with the people um, that read the scriptures. And I was, I was thinking today because this is a continuation off of last week's sermon. David talked about different imagery in the Bible what that means, etc. And today we are talking about rocks, all right? Very exciting. I hope to keep some of you awake by the end of that. This is my goal. And so I was thinking about the, the, the scripture that was just read in, in Mark and how, how it relates to what we're talking about. And so we're going to make a couple of leaps to get there. Uh, so the first, first thing we noticed in Mark uh, that we just read is that the Pharisees, they have this idea about the law and in some ways, it's, it's, uh, in their mind, it's, it's right. right? They, they've studied it, and they're, they're doing these things. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've got this wrong. Um, this is the way it should be. And so we see in other interactions uh, with Jesus and the Pharisees that he, he redirects them and says, look at Hosea 6.6, which talks about um, that I desire mercy and not sacrifices, um, uh, steadfast love, etc. And so what we, what we see is, is Christ redirecting the Pharisees from their current understanding, and it says, and he, he directs them to know and understand him, Christ. And in, in, the, in the passages, we hear, heard him say, listen and understand. And so there's, there is a call to Jesus, that Jesus made to the Pharisees to know and understand him. And so today we're going to continue to do that from a totally different angle than I think a lot of us are used to. So for this sermon, we're going to begin with Genesis 1.1. <laughs> Made someone happy. Yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so... We know what happens next. After that, he spoke and his word created the life in this world. The things we see, like that image is a great example. He spoke and there's that, right? He spoke and his word created life. And so when we, when we pick up a rock, right? Or when we behold <laughs> trees or, or beautiful scenes like this, what we are looking at is a reflection of God's identity spoken into existence by his very word, right? This is a product of his thought. And so, after God creates these things, he takes the dirt and he forms it and he makes you Adam. And he does not nearly speak you into existence, but he breathes his life inside of you. But then we failed and the world was cursed. But he would finish what he began. It was certain, it is certain, that the Alpha and Omega will bring what he began to its eternal end. And so we look to the word, not just to, what we, we look to the word to know and understand God. And when I say word, what, what do I mean by word, right? We have the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and we look to him to know and understand we have the word, the Bible, and we look to it to know and understand. And so when we have creation, we have something spoken by God's word. And so I wouldn't necessarily suggest that we 
look to it the same way we look to the scriptures and the Bible, but there is still something here that is the thought and the mind of God spoken into existence by his very word. So, God's glory strikes a visceral chord in those that behold God's glory. Like, there's nothing passive about beholding God's glory. It has some sort of effect, usually an overwhelming effect. And very recently, that visceral chord was struck within me. So, might be wondering, like, what, what happened, Michael? When was this chord struck in you? Where were you? I was at a national park, uh, Shawnee National Park, a place called Garden of the Gods. And oddly enough, I'll be there probably tomorrow. Um, so this, this place called Garden of the Gods, if you have not been there, I'll describe it for you. There are these massive, massive boulders stacked on top of each other. Really, really impressive. Standing next to them, you're just in, totally small. And when you're walking past through the park, there's a place where you can see the boulders up close, and there's these really interesting patterns etched into them, patterns I have not seen anywhere else before. Very beautiful. And then when you stood on top of these boulders, because for whatever reason, even though it's dangerous, they let you do that, and you're standing on top of these boulders, and all you can see is the tops of trees heading off into the horizon. And so standing there, I beheld more than mere beauty, there was something more there, and what I, what I experienced was glory, right? There was something more. I felt it, this visceral thing. And <clears throat> if we kind of disconnect ourselves from, from what I just said, right, this experience that I had, it's kind of silly to me, right? Like, I, you go there and like, oh, there's these big rocks, yay, it's a big rock, What's, what's, what's so magnificent about a big rock? Or like when you look into outer space, it, it sometimes or often has this effect on you just looking out in there. Like why? It's just lights in the sky. And if it is just beauty, if all it is is aesthetically pleasing sights, then even why does beauty compel us? There is something experienced. It is something beautiful, but it is more than beauty. So we look back at history and we look at the Bible and we see misguided humans worship these things, right? And in some way, that's, that's no surprise because God's glory is declared by his creation. His identity is his word and his word spoke this into being. So we're talking about imagery and more specifically, we're going to be talking a lot about rocks. And we want to know and understand, Right? This is what we're called to do. One of the things we're called to do is to know and understand Christ, God, the creator, every, the triune, right? Know and understand. And so as we set out to do this, there, there is this, there is sort of this wall here where it's like, I cannot reduce God's creation to mere like hermeneutics and reasoning and logic. I cannot reduce it to that because there is this glory that declares who God is that cannot be reduced to that. But at the same time, we cannot completely abandon it. And so we're kind of stuck in this balance where we're, we're trying to know and understand, but we also have to accept, we get to accept the fact that there is just so much beauty and majesty and glory that reflects God's identity in, in creation 
that we're not really going to be able to touch with logic and hermeneutics and stuff like that. But we're still going to work towards knowing and understanding. So, um, we're going to start, as far as looking through this, with a story. And this story is one involving Moses. He's going to be, I guess, the main character for a little bit. So, I think we all remember the story where the Israelites, they leave Egypt. And there they were slaves, they were captives, they were oppressed. And God leads them out of Egypt, and now they're in the desert. And the desert is hot, the desert is dry, and the people are thirsty. And so they complain to Moses, and then Moses talks to God. And then God says, speak to this rock. Moses whacks the rock instead. Water comes out of the rock. People have water. The end. So in that story that I think we're familiar with, there is, there's like a narrative, and there's a lot that can be ascertained from that narrative. There's stuff we can, we can pull from that and learn from that, and it builds out a, a greater story. However, there is another narrative told in that story. It's a poetic and prophetic story told with imagery. And, of course, rocks. So, because we are, because we're looking at this very specifically from the standpoint of the actual imagery that was present there, we're going to visualize things a bit. And so, let me set the scene a little bit. <clears throat> when Moses gathered the people of Israel, right, uh, and he's, he gathers the people of Israel, this is before he strikes the rock, I would assume that you'd have the people of Israel, you'd have Moses, and then you have the rock behind him. He's talking to the people of Israel, you have the rock over there. This detail's not so important, but I just want to visualize this. People of Israel, Moses, rock. And Moses was holding a staff. This is an important detail. The Bible says that he, was, he had his staff. And this was not an ordinary staff. This was not a, a stick that he just picked up, you know, to look more official when he walked up there to talk to the people of Israel. This was a staff that was used in the context of judgment. In the plagues of Israel, this staff was used in the context of judgment. And so we are going to consider this a rod of judgment that Moses is holding. And then there's another really, really important visual. So when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, they were guided by something something very important, and that was God's spirit, a pillar of fire and smoke. Now, I say a pillar of fire and smoke, um, and that's, that's because some theologians suggest that it says in the Bible it was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Some theologians suggest that during the daytime you saw the smoke, and at nighttime you saw the light of the fire, but it was always burning and there was always smoke. That's not an important detail, but it's, it's how I see it. So we'll roll with it. So this pillar of fire and smoke... In this scene, so Moses is standing there with his staff, you have the people of Israel, and you have this rock that he's about to hit. Where is the pillar of fire and smoke? The Bible says that it was above the rock. So this pillar of fire and smoke is resting above the rock. And so Moses tells the people, Hear now, you rebels. He's not very happy. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? 
And so then Moses takes the rod of judgment and he strikes. And if the cloud, as the Bible says, is above the rock, I believe he could have very well been striking through this cloud, which represents God's spirit, God's glory leading them. He strikes through the cloud and he hits the rock. And then he does it again. He hits the rock again. And so when Moses strikes the rock with a rod of judgment that God's spirit is resting over, what do we expect to happen? Yeah, water comes out of it. I don't think that's what I would expect to happen if I was reading this story for the first time, with the, the exception that God told him that that's what would happen. But like, he struck something that God's spirit was resting over with judgment, and something good came out of it, right? Life-giving water, and the people of Israel had something to drink. So why did I get excited about that? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so here we have this this beautiful parallel between Christ and this rock in the desert, right? First Corinthians is telling us that that rock that the that the water came out of, that was Christ. And so we have this image of this rock being struck with a rod of judgment. God's spirit is hovering over this rock and out comes life-giving water. It is, to me, one of the more beautiful images that we have, we have in, Bible, in the Bible. <clears throat> so we're going to continue in the New Testament. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And... In John 4, verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, right? It's living water. And then later on in the conversation, around verse 14, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life or everlasting life in, in the New King James Version. And so this, this rock in the desert gave the people of Israel life-giving water in, in the context of, of their, their human life. But later on, the rock, which is Christ, was struck with a rod of judgment. And out of that came not just water for our mere physical lives, but, but eternal life. So this is the first idea that we're going to hold on to when we're talking about rocks. That the rock represented Christ, and upon being struck with judgment, life-giving water came out of it. Which is really just a, a story about Christ, right? So the next character in the Bible we're going to look at for this next little portion is Peter. Now, <clears throat> Peter wasn't his original name, right? It was Simon Bar-Jonah. We all know about Jonah, right? We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Jonah's great. Um, and so where did the name Peter come from? It came from Christ. So Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, and so we could casually consider it a nickname or more seriously consider it 
a new identity for Peter. And I was, I was talking about to, to Wayne recently about, about rocks. Um, and and we, we talked about this interaction between, between Jesus and Peter. And we're going to look at that interaction here. I think, it's, I think it's pretty substantially significant. So Peter's name in, in Greek, like this name that Jesus gave Peter, we know as being the word Petros. And Petros means a piece of rock. Peter, a piece of rock. Not his mom-given name, this is Christ-given name, a piece of rock. And so in the New Testament, without exception, when you see the word Petros, it's not talking about anything else other than Peter. That is, that is without exception. It's not talking about Christ, it's not talking about anyone else. This is Peter, a piece of rock. There's another word, there's another word in the, in the Bible um, that refers to rocks, and this is the one that Christ is often associated with, and that word is Petra. So you have Petros, and then Petra. And Petra is not the same as Petros, because Petra is a mighty rock, right? A massive rock. You can think of it like the rock in the desert, a massive rock. And a, an example of when, when Christ is used, it's like the word Petra is used, is actually that 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 that we just read, when it says Jesus Christ, the rock, that's Jesus Christ, the Petra, the mighty rock. <clears throat> and so now let's read this interaction between Christ and Peter, Simon Barjona. Christ is asking him, like, who do you say I am? And in Matthew 16, verses 16, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Very profound statement at that moment. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Notice he didn't call him Peter here. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Petros. You are Peter. You are a piece of rock. And on this Petra, I will build my church. You are a piece of rock. And on this mighty rock, I will build my church. And so the, we have this really cool image that is, is used in other places of the Bible that we can kind of build off of where Christ is Petra, he's a mighty rock. But he's saying, Peter, you're a piece of that. You're a piece of that rock. And so, okay, that's great. Good for you, Peter. Glad you get to be a piece of that rock. Uh, I'm kind of selfish, so I kind of want to know about, you know, what about me? And so Peter kind of addresses that. He speaks to that. In First Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, referring to Christ here, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Cool, right? So Peter has sort of, I guess, like an honor of being called a piece of rock by Christ. And Peter's like, hey, you, you guys are also like, like pieces of rock. You're, you guys are also like living stones. And so that kind of leads me to something. 
A spiritual house um, being built reminds me of a particular parable that Jesus told. You might be thinking of it already. And that is the parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus is telling the parable, and he says, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the Petra, right? The rock, the mighty rock who's Christ. And then he goes on to say that, that those who hear but do not do are like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And so here we continue to build on this idea that Christ is not only the rock, that out of it comes living water upon, upon receiving judgment, that he did not earn nor deserve, but that he is also a foundation, right? He is this, the cornerstone cut without human hands that we are built on as living stones. We build on Christ, who is the foundation. So that is idea number two. And we have one more idea. I think there's a lot more ideas in the Bible about rocks, but we're going we're gonna to just go to one more. We're going to go all the way back to Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in this dream there was a mighty statue, and the statue had all these different materials that it was built out of, gold, clay, uh, bronze, etc. Iron was in there. And Daniel interprets the dream, and in, in the dream interpretation, he's telling him what he saw through what God gave him. And so we're going to read that. In Daniel 2, verse 34, Daniel says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. His kingdom come. And so you may have pulled out what I'm, I'm about to point out here, but I'll just go ahead and do it anyways. <laughs> um, the stone, right, that it was cut by no human hands, that's Christ in his kingdom. And it, when it made contact with the kingdoms of this world, it crushed them, right? And, and, and what I would say is kind of a, a judgment. It crushed them and scattered them like chaff. And then his kingdom was established and filled the whole earth. And so that's, that's a bit abstract. Um, so we're going to pair that with more of a direct example of Christ the rock, or the rock representing a type of judgment. Jesus looked at them directly and said, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and on anyone whom it falls will be crushed. And so very similar to the, the example in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the stone, the, the stone crushing and them becoming like chaff, like powder. We also have Christ saying, referring to himself, saying that everyone whom the stone falls on will be broken to pieces. And so it's not the most 
fun idea in, in these, this trio here. But Christ, right, the rock, life comes out of it. It's a foundation that we build on. But it's also, it's, it's, it's hard, right? If this falls, not this, but the massive rock, this image of Christ, if it falls, it's not the one that gets broken. It, it crushes everything else. It is, it is unbreakable. And so the, the rock also represents a type of judgment. So we got these three ideas. And as, as you can probably think of, there, there are much more ideas connected to rocks in, in the Bible. We have uh, Psalms that talk about a rock, a fortress, right? A rock is a defense. But what I really want to pull from this, because really the, these two sermons paired together are, are, are talking about like, how, we, how we perceive imagery in the Bible, like I started off this sermon talking about just the absolute visceral impact that God's creation tends to have on us humans. Uh, but then also in the Bible, we have, we have imagery used in interesting, interesting ways that start telling stories, the imagery itself. And so let's just, let's just think about this for a little bit. So intuitively, when we see images in the Bible, we intuitively know that they're not hieroglyphs. What do I mean by that? So like a hieroglyph, it's like an image. It's like a picture that represents a word. It's like a one-to-one relationship with a word. So when we see like the Bible says rock, right? We're not saying like, oh, all that means, that's, that's just, that means fortress. So just scratch out rock and write fortress instead. We know that that's not really the case intuitively. The other thing we know intuitively is that images in the Bible are more than illustrations. They're not just illustrations. So when when we see Christ described as the rock, we're not thinking like, oh, that's what he looked like. Yeah. Right? It's not, an, it's not an illustration in that sense where that's how we're visualizing things. So if it's not a hieroglyph, it's not an illustration, then what, what is it? How are we going to think about this? To me, what I found the most helpful way to, to, to sort of put together this idea of how I'm, how I'm going to look at imagery in the Bible is to consider it an idea, right? So the Bible says rock. It's talking, about, it's talking about a lot of things, but it's talking about this idea of a rock. And then the Bible builds on this idea, right? The, the Bible then adds on to it. And we have the, like the story with Moses and we have the, the different like poetic and prophetic uses of it. And so we, we, we start off with maybe something visceral, like God is a rock, and like we have like this visceral understanding, like, okay, he's solid, he's unmovable, right? But then the Bible builds on this, and he's like, it's also a foundation, right? And it is also what we build off of, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so really what, what this is, is leading at is that we can see, we can see imagery in the Bible as, as an idea. And that's really helpful um, when, we get to, when we get to images that are harder to understand, that don't quite make sense. Because I think that when, when there's imagery in the Bible that's less obvious than, than let's say, a rock, um, there's a temptation to say, like, oh, it must be like a hieroglyph, right? That's like a code word that means something else. But it's helpful to remember that these are ideas placed in the Bible, and, and you can look at throughout the Bible, which takes a lot of effort, and a lot of these ideas I got from other people who looked very long at the Bible. But you can, you can look at the Bible, and the Bible itself builds on these ideas, these images. And like, um, this isn't really part of the sermon, this is, might be a tangent, but 
you have, you have examples in the Bible where God refers to a king, and he doesn't use the king's name, but he calls him a beast. And so, so how, how would we, thinking of this as beast as an idea, not a hieroglyph, how would we, how would we, how would we interpret that? So the, the, the way you would break that down according to this kind of way we're looking at things, is you look at it in the Bible, like, how is this idea of beast being built on? I mean, you have King Nebuchadnezzar who was reduced to a beast, right? And he ate the grass on the ground and stuff like that. And so what we have is we're able to then build off of that and say, okay, when God's referring to this king as a beast, right? This is a king that is not, this is not in alignment with God. We have these other images to pull off of and build on that idea. And so that's, that's maybe a, a, an example of how we could, how we could apply this. So there's also more ideas than just rocks. Like, obviously, I, I enjoy talking about rocks. Um, and most of you are still awake, I think. Um, but <laughs> thank you. God's creation, once again, was spoken into existence by his word, and his word is, identi- is, is his identity. So it is no surprise that if we look in other places of the Bible, so many elements of creation, basically everything you can see in that picture, and more, much more, are used to describe God or, or attributes of God, the nature of God, etc. Everything in creation bears some analogy to God. God is described, for example, as the sun, the morning star. God as, of course, the rock. The spirit as wind, breath, fire. In the Bible, we have a fountain of living water, a light, a hiding place, even a shadow. We see God's strength compared to the cedars of Lebanon. We also have animals such as the lion, the lamb, the spirit as a dove, in Deuteronomy, an eagle. In Matthew, a, also a protective hen. And all of the colors that in, are in the rainbow surround God's throne. And so we have this, this everything in, in, in creation declares the glory of God and in some way reflects God. And so it's no surprise, it's a bi- surprise that the Bible pulls from that. And it was really interesting to me um, that like during, during the, the worship, you know, uh, or during some sort of prayer, I think Dan talked about God and his glory being like gemstones. And that, that idea actually comes from the Bible. Like God's glory being like gemstones. And that also correlates to the rainbows around his throne. That's not part of this sermon, but I thought it was interesting. And the other thing I thought was interesting was that when Daryl got up here, he talked about like, like fire from our hearts reaching up to God and him, and him seeing that. And while this is not like a one-to-one, like when God's fire came down and consumed the sacrifices, or you had, you had different examples of God's fire coming down, or you had the pillar of fire and glory, if we remember that we ourselves are also rocks, and then in the desert we had the, the pillar of fire and smoke above the rocks, and then we think about Pentecost, where we, the, the people there, they had like the f- tongues of fire above their heads. There is just sort of this continuity in the imagery of, of Christ is the rock and God's spirit rests over it. We're also pieces of rock and God's spirit, in a sense, rests over us as well. So in closing, what does it mean for us to place ourselves on the foundation, the cornerstone of the rock? Remember, it is not just a rock, but it is the rock. There is no other true foundation for us 
we were in the desert. Remember the Moses story? We were in the desert with no water, and he was struck by judgment on our behalf, and he sprang forth living water. His kingdom come. Amen. So, let's pray. God, we are, we are in, in awe of, of your glory and your beauty. And God, I, I feel, I feel this, this, this call that you've given us to know and understand you. So God, I pray that, that you, would, you, would take, you would take this message and you take things throughout this week and help us to continue to grow and to, and to not just to understand you, but to know you, right? And not just to know you, but to understand you, God. We want to, we want to, draw ever closer to you in our heart and in our understanding and in all things, God. So we thank you and we love you. Amen.